You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Well, hello and good morning. We we do need our children's volunteers. We're getting ready to open back up, and uh, we, I know Sharon and Mike have a whole training today for those who are, have already volunteered. But if you wish to uh, volunteer, you can sign up at the information desk. Man, we have a lot of kids out here. Praise God. All right, so open your Bibles. You got two places. You need to mark two places in your Bible. Habakkuk chapter 3 and Deuteronomy 26, or on your phone, whichever way. Habakkuk 3, Deuteronomy 26. While you're doing that, I want to share with you something. So this morning, um, as I was preparing the outline of my sermon, sermon, as I do every Sunday morning, uh, which, just to be clear, because it was brought to my attention this week, that there was some confusion there, that a few weeks ago, I asked you, if you remember, to come Sunday morning, what, prepared, right? Prepared to worship with your heart ready. And I had it brought up that I said that I write my sermons that morning as if somehow I don't do anything all week and then wake up Sunday morning and I'm like, uh, this? No, I study, I prep, I'm doing everything. If you've actually talked with me during the week, you know that um, I'm probably talking to you about what God's showing me. I write my outline on Sunday morning. I've done it for 11 years in ministry now. All the books tell you not to do it. I've tried to be like the other great pastors. Turns out I'm not. And so after 11 years, this is just what works for me. This is how God has set it up for me. And so as I'm doing that this morning uh, and preparing in Habakkuk and Deuteronomy, it's not, this word isn't even in these two, but this word accuser came, the accuser. Anybody ever felt accused? Anybody ever felt shamed and guilt like, oh man, I can't go today. I can't do that. I can't serve. Why? Because the accuser's telling me I'm not worthy. The accuser's reminding me of my mistakes, and they are many. And I don't know why God brought this up, because as I read these, you'll see it's not really in here, and yet, and yet it is. It is in here, because what the accuser, the devil, wants to do is he wants to remind you that you are nothing but filthy rags. He wants you to forget that you were bought at a price, that the Lamb of God died on a cross, that you were worthy of that that he came down to you because he is holy and he is righteous. And when the accuser comes into our life, the accuser can take many forms. And when he comes, it can make life very difficult to see the forest for the tree. As we talk this morning on worship, as we talk about this, this time of corporate worship, and we, we get into the idea of giving and our tithes and offerings and what is the... Um, financial part of corporate worship, right? I want you to hear that there is no accusation. Maybe that's where God was going with it this morning. There's no accusation. The fact of the matter is that this is one of the five elements of Sunday morning corporate worship. We talked about the songs last week. Today it's about the tithes. Next week the communion. And then the message and intervention and prayer. This is not just something we do because we're a church. This is not just something we do to keep the lights on in the building. This is an act of worship. One that was laid out in the tabernacle as we look at the brazen altar, right? One that represents that we come before it and there must be a penalty paid. We know that there was a lamb that was slaughtered 
and that the blood of the lamb was placed in the holy of holies and sprinkled, right? In order to pay for the sacrifice of sin. It is the sacrifice. And Christ came to be that final lamb that his blood would cover all mankind, past, present, and future. When we give, we give out of a gracious, generous, joyous heart. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to talk about this idea of what it means to give, and what it means especially to give in evil times. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Habakkuk is a prophet. He's one of the minor prophets. And he is preaching to his people in very dark, dark times. He is speaking of the joy of the Lord, the hope of their God, in times when it is not very evident to see. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go to hide. Amen? Now, I want to back this up with Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11. And so I'm going to read this here, and then we'll get into the tying together of the two. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 26. When you have entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you have taken possession of it and settled it. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is going to give you, and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose at the time... I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers that he would give us. The priest shall then take the basket from your hand and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare, this is important, right? Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. So we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. The Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place to give us this land and flowing with milk and honey. Now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. I place the basket before the Lord your God. I bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all good things the Lord your God has given you in your heart. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into this time, I pray that you would uh, open eyes and ears, hearts, minds, see and recognize your spirit. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you that you are here in our midst. May we hear your, your words speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this is a, a little book in the Bible. It's about Habakkuk talking to the Israelites during a time of great evil and trouble. And uh, the truth is, evil times, in evil times when things are not getting better and better, right, where each generation is not getting better, um, it's, it can be difficult to 
give. It can be difficult to worship the Lord and trust the Lord for our sustenance. And we're even feeling that here in the great land of the USA, aren't we? That when disease and pestilence strikes, it may not be wiping out our crops. It may not be wiping out our cattle. But we are feeling the effects of what this disease is causing around the world and in our nation and here locally. Whereas you might be able to look and say the first half of the 20th century, 20th century was evil times with wars and depressions and sickness in the beginning of the 20th century. The second half has, in comparison, been rather good times, hasn't it? We've had our wars. We've had a few wars in the second half of the 20th century. But the fact of the matter is the growth, the exponential growth that mankind has seen in the 20th century is unparalleled. And for generations... We have been a very blessed people, especially here in the USA. We have been blessed. So what happens when times, maybe like they are now, begin to turn downward? What do we do? What do we do? Do you think we're entering evil times? Do you think we've been in evil times? Do you think that that maybe we're at the end of it? Maybe we never left it? The fact is, in, in the times we are currently living in, the uncertainty of a disease that seems to be going all over the world and covers all of our attention daily because it changed everything that we do from how we go to the store to how we attend church. And so what I want you to see here from Habakkuk is the principle that he's laying out. And if you look at the principle that he's laying out and say, I can't do that. It's a wonderful ideal, but I can't do that. You're right. If you look at Habakkuk and try to do that, you won't be able to do it. But that's why you don't look at Habakkuk. If you can see what he's laying down, you will be able to rejoice in tribulation. Whether you are doing great through this current crisis or you are struggling, what I want to teach you today is to have joy in tribulation and joy through giving and how giving breeds out of us. It it, it births in us a joy. If you can believe that, even in our poverty, it breeds in us a joy. So he's describing here Habakkuk, an economic disaster, right? The figs, the grapes, the olives, the grain, the four ways in which the land produced fruit so you could eat, also the sheep and the cattle, all of their wealth. Imagine in your investment portfolio. You're probably diversified, right? Hopefully, Maybe. Do you not know what a portfolio, I don't know what a portfolio is. I don't have one, right? Like the country song that when Wall Street fell, we were so poor we couldn't tell. Yeah, I don't have a portfolio. Wall Street could fall and be like, eh. But if you have a portfolio today, it's, in, it's, uh, it's diversified and it's probably got a lot of tech stocks in it. And it's got a lot of the big companies that are solid choices and continue to grow throughout history. Well, if you look at this time, What Habakkuk is talking about is the portfolio of the wealthy people. This is their diversification. Figs, grapes, olives, grain, sheep, cattle. And Habakkuk says, what about a time that comes and it wipes out all of those things? What if there is a time that comes and it wipes out your entire portfolio, all of your investments? And they're not coming back, at least not immediately. What do you do? His answer is more full than it looks maybe at first light. 
And what he's doing is he is alluding to Deuteronomy 26 and this idea of our first fruits. Jesus is going to take this idea and take it even farther as he does with all ideas throughout Scripture, right? It says in the law that if you murder someone, you are guilty. I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty. It says in the law to commit adultery with your neighbor's wife makes you guilty. I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you are already guilty of adultery. Christ never took the law and made it easier, did he? He always took it and stepped it up a notch. You're going to see here when it comes to our finances, when it comes to honestly, where does our heart lie? He's going to do the same thing again. And so Habakkuk is preparing the people. And as we prepare for a season, depending on what outcomes come in the rest of this year, right, Sometimes it feels like we're just hoping for 2020 to be over, as if 2021 holds better options for us. Sometimes the grass isn't always greener, and we need to learn to find joy exactly where we're at, amen? If I can find joy now, Lord, then no matter what 2021 brings, no matter what September brings, no matter what August 17th brings, I can have joy. I'm not going to wait for things to get better. I want to have your joy now. So we're looking at these three ways that we give. Sacrificially, he has called us to give, joyfully, and with grace. So these are the three things we're looking at. Sacrificially, in Deuteronomy 26.2, we see this principle. It's called first fruits. I've talked about it before. It's a principle we see all throughout the Torah. And the idea is that what God was requesting of his people was that they would bring the first and the best of what they had as an offering unto the Lord. Now, how this worked was, when they gathered up all their crops, rather than making sure that they had enough for themselves and their families and their families' families, that they would take the best of what they began to gather, a tenth of it, and they would bring it before the Lord. It may be all they get. A storm may wipe out the rest of it. This is the the best of it. And God said, I want that first. You see, our inclination is to wait until all the funds are gathered and then give God out of our surplus, not out of our sacrifice. And that's what we do as a nation. We give God, as Christians, out of our surplus. Things are going great. I want to give to the church. I want to give to ministries that help people. I want to give to my friend who's going on a long-term mission trip. But when things get tight, our natural reaction is to clam up in the financial area as well. And here's what's so crazy about this, and it's funny because we do it without even thinking about it. We do it as if, just like you don't think about the breath you're taking in and out, times get tough and instantly you you draw in, right? Cut the cable out, we'll go to a flip phone. (laughs) Do we really need internet? Do the children need three meals a day? That kind of stuff, right? You just start cutting costs. And often, and typically, yes, any sort of ministry, any sort of sacrificial or generous giving, philanthropic, you know what I'm saying, that kind of giving, philanthropy, I got it, kind of, it all goes away. It goes away, and and we we save, we conserve, we make sure that we're going to make it through this difficult time. Habakkuk says, no, no. You need to give out of sacrifice. The principle is this. If you wait until everything is in and you give God out of a surplus, 
and there is no sacrifice, what good is your sacrifice? If it's not actually costing you anything, but it just looks impressive, God says, I don't care how big the check is. I don't care how faithfully you write it. You give me every month, every week, every year out of the surplus of your life. You have never given to me sacrificially. Now, I want you to think about here, what are the things that we do sacrifice for? I'm going to give you one big one because just about everyone in here has done it or has one. You know what it is? House. In America, it is the dream to own a home. And none of us have the 100000 dollars for the most part, just sitting in our big piggy bank to go buy one. And so right off the bat in our young lives, we get into what? Debt. Four-letter word in church. I'm sorry. Bleep that out for the live stream, would you, Luke? Thanks. The D word. We get into debt right away, and we begin to sacrifice every day, every week of our life for the home. Well, guess what? I live in the suburbs called Santan Valley. It is 280 miles from anything that resembles a job. I'm going to need a car. Well, I don't have ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 lying around, so now I need to get into more. Yeah, see, now you're getting it. My job is so stressful because I drive 500 miles both ways to work, Monday through Sunday, every day, and so when I take my vacations, I want to do something nice, and in order to do something nice, and you're in Arizona, you should be on the water, which means I need to get a boat. I don't want just any boat. I work hard for my money, so I'll get a nice boat. I make enough money, I can afford another payment and get into just a little bit more. See, you've been sacrificing your whole life. You make sacrifices in your finances every single day. The fact is, when it comes to the Lord, we think of giving to him out of our surplus. Because it's a sacrifice we can afford to not give. What an incredible lie the accuser has told his people. What an incredible lie he's come and said, he's blessed you. He's blessed you. In these hard times, you save up so that way when times get good again, you can bless his church again. The fact of the matter is, my friends, if you have never given to God out of a place of true sacrifice, then what it shows is not that you are cheap or a penny pincher or don't understand the word. It just shows you where your heart is. Where's my heart? Where are the things that I consider important? See, Christ, when he came and gave his life, he gave sacrificial. He gave sacrificial. So when he says, go and do as you see me do, he asks us not just of our finances, but to give of our lives sacrificially, to lay our lives down. That as we lay our lives down, we would pick up his yoke, we would pick up his life, his righteousness, that he would show us there's so much more to this life than the bag of bones you were born with, that you were created for more, that you were designed to do more, but you can't do more when your hands are already full, can you? So he says, set it down. Set it down. Let me show you what I've got for you. 
Now, if you're here at this point, you've made it this far online, you might be thinking, this is a grim sermon. I hate money sermons. I should have looked at the Thursday email. It could have warned me. I would have gone to a different church online. And you may be doing that right now. Don't stop. Okay, thank you. Here's the first point. He won't give sacrificially. The second point, though, this should get rid of the grimness. You ready? How does he call us to give? Joyfully. Joyfully. Now we're going to get into this Deuteronomy 26, and I want you to see here, because this is so cool, and I don't know where the church lost this, but in Deuteronomy 26, when you brought your basket, which was full of your offering, which would have been the grains or the figs or olives or grapes, right? You would bring it and you would give it to the priest. In verse 2, go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in verse 4, the priest will take the basket, your offering, your first fruits, from your hands. He will set it down on the altar of the Lord your God. And then you shall do what? Declare to God his goodness. You shall declare. You don't just come and drop it off. You don't just go, here you go. There it is. That's, I promise that's 10%. You don't just sign the check and drop it in and be like, there, it's done. Bless me, O Lord. You actually have to stop and declare who he is. You see that? This isn't just a one-time thing. This is part of it. That as you bring your first fruits in, you give a testimony of the grace of God. And if you look at what they're declaring, it's all about the grace of God. Every word of it. I have worked hard for this, my first fruits. The only reason I get anything is because of your grace, O oh God. The land that I'm in, it's a gift. I was once a slave in Egypt, but you set us free with great and terrible plagues and a sacrifice of a slaughtered lamb whose blood was put on my doorpost. You set me free. And it is my privilege to bring the first 10 of what I have before you, and you declare it. Do you know that we are a fickle people? Aren't we? We are a fickle people. Our, our attention, our loyalties can sway with the wind. But if you declare, when you bring your tithe or you bring an offering and you declare it unto God, what it does is it grounds you like a stake being driven deeper into your heart of why you're doing what you're doing. I'm not doing this so that he'll bless me. I'm not doing this because of the verse in Malachi that says, test me in this that your barns won't be overflowing. I am doing this because I recognize, oh God, my need for a savior. I recognize that before you I was lost in addiction. I was hopeless. I was helpless. I recognize that before you I was heading away from you destined to be separated from you for eternity. And you came and you reached into my life and you pulled me out. Bless the name of the Lord. Bless you, Jesus. Here is my tithe. Here is my tenth. You declare the gospel. You're never allowed to just give. You must connect your giving with the good news. Maybe we need to pick that one back up here time of giving where you get to declare. Matthew 6 tells us not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where, our moth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. 
But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Who here hates baseball? Okay, it's the most boring thing ever for you. You can't imagine sitting for two and a half hours watching. Right? You're like, that for two and a half, three hours? Now imagine you're given tickets to like the greatest rivalry, Yankees versus Boston, completely paid for. And you're still, here we go. And you're like, all right. I mean, I guess if it's all paid for. But if you love baseball, you don't need to have it paid for. You have saved for years for this exact moment. See, I spent time back in Massachusetts the year that the, uh, right before the um, uh, Boston Red Sox broke the curse of the great Bambino and actually won their first World Series in how many years? 80-something. And the place was abuzz, and there were people who said, I have saved for decades for this in our family. They have a savings, literally, just in case one day the Red Sox went to the World Series. We're going to buy tickets for every game at home, we're going to party, we're going to celebrate, and the $15,000 it will cost to do that is worth it. Why? Because that's where their heart was. Their heart was for that team. They've grown up, they've rooted for that team. Family memories have been made with that team. And if you're sitting here and you can't stand baseball, you're like, what a waste of $15,000. I can think of so many better things to do with it, like a motorcycle. That would not have been a waste. Meanwhile, the baseball guy's going, that's dangerous and you'll die. You'll poke your eye out. No, you can't have a motorcycle. You see, what you spend your money on is, is the litmus test of your life for what you value. And it's okay to spend your money on those things. I always need to say this because at some point somebody gets in their heart this condemnation. The accuser comes and goes, oh, you just bought that nice thing and here he is talking about money. Feel guilt, shame. Stop it. No. God allows us those things. Those things are wonderful. The whole point is, can you live your life and give sacrificially the first fruits to the Lord and then budget the rest of your life on what's left? If you have a recognition of what Christ has done in your life, then it is not a duty to give. It should be a joy. And I bring it to you first, Lord, in case the rest of the month doesn't go as planned and I end up not having the money to give to you, I give it to you first. And you see, the promise is that when you do that, that's when Malachi's promise comes. But if you're doing it because of Malachi's promise, you're missing the point. I don't give to God because of what he could give to me. I give to God because of what he's already done for me. Because he pulled me out of hell. Lastly, we give graciously. As challenging as this whole sermon so far has been, and I know it's challenging because it forces us to think about our wallets and our pocketbooks. It forces us to look at ourselves and evaluate. It forced me this week to look at myself and evaluate where is my heart at. That's why I let my wife control the checkbook. Make sure that that tithe comes in here every week. 
or month, however we do it. But the point of the matter is this, is I can remember, so I can remember when we moved out here, right? We bought a smaller house when we moved out here. It's uh, what we could afford at the time, and we didn't know, well, let's be honest, we didn't know what was going to happen here. Things were a little tenuous in 2013 here at LifePoint. And so we bought this house. We had already lost our last house, and we're finishing up with a short sale that we had done, so we had sold off a bunch of stuff. We didn't have a lot of stuff, and we move into this neighborhood where every single man has a garage that he's built into a man cave, and every weekend they open up their garage doors, and there's TVs on the walls, and there's side-by-sides, and quads, and dirt bikes, and fun. There's actually a bucket of fun in one guy's garage just full of it. And I'm like, oh, man. It became the ultimate keeping up with the Joneses as we, as year by year, we were there, and I'd see more stuff that was there, and I began to think, and then I looked at what we were giving monthly to the church, and it was a significant amount, and I just thought, and I remember talking with my wife about that. I remember that feeling when, when greed, when I begin to lose perspective on what matters. I begin to say, man, we could have everything our neighbors have if we just, if we cut it in half even. God, God would know we're still sacrificing. I'll get the 800 side by side, not the 1,000. I'm sacrificing for God. <laughs> That's American sacrifice, by the way. It's a joke. It's sarcasm. It's not real. And I can remember her response and the way we talked about it. The response of remembering who God is and why we give. See, I had lost sight of why we gave. I had begun to take my eyes off of who God was and that I have nothing in this life because, without him. And I began to look at materialistic things that will burn away and break down. And I begin to put my hope in them and my faith in them. See how quickly it happens? It's not that you can't have those things. It's where is your hope and your faith? And you can say it's in Christ. And then I'll just take a real quick look at your checking account. And we'll see if your first fruits go to the Lord. Do your actions follow your words? Habakkuk's saying, what if there is no first fruits? What if there are no first fruits? What if we have nothing to give God because he has not provided food, he has not provided shelter, he has not provided work, the invaders have come in, the armies have come in, and we're under the oppression of sickness, of government, whatever it is. Habakkuk says, what if even all of this were to happen? Maybe you'd say, how would God allow that to happen? Because he loves you a lot. He loves you a lot. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned about addiction and focusing my eyes was when I was young and I got into collecting basketball cards and I was spending my weekly allowance of four or five dollars before I even got it. We'd go to the Smitty's. Anyone remember Smitty's? And uh, I would buy them and my allowance was five bucks and the total with tax was going to be 518. So I was already borrowing against next week's allowance or months. Actually, that was five dollars a month. That was, <laughs> wow. Um, and I remember my dad began to see in me the addiction and he began to see how it was consuming me and how I was beginning to develop bad practices. And so what he did is he, he just put a kibosh on it. Done. You cannot buy or spend money on basketball. I wept. And Nathan wept. 
I was so like, how? It was everything. My friend circles, we traded them. We showed each other what we got, the hope of getting a Michael Jordan. Everything was gone. There was no reason to live anymore. I think I was 11 years old. <laughs> I lost all reason to live. Can you think, do you think my priorities were out of whack just a little bit? And honestly, what it began to do, though, is it began to make me want them even more. And I began to think of ways to sneak them, and I desired them, and I, all I could think about was them because I wasn't allowed to have them anymore. And then my dad did the wisest thing maybe ever in his life. He said, every week, you can spend 40% or 50% of your money on basketball cards. You have to tie the portion of it, and the rest you can spend on other things. Or every month, again, I forget. But the point was, he then put a limit around it, a healthy understanding. But I needed it taken away first. You see, God allows us to struggle. He allows the economy and sickness to come upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And the unrighteous will just see it as a hindrance to their happiness, whereas the righteous will recognize that their father is helping realign their perspectives. He is bringing them back into what counts. He is showing them where life is. And can I tell you something crazy? When he instituted that new plan where I could only spend a certain amount on the cards, within two months, I don't think I've ever bought another pack of basketball cards again. I just didn't care to anymore. Because it was no longer taboo that I couldn't touch it. And it was no longer controlling my heart that all I could do was think about it. And I drifted and found other things that I enjoyed in a healthy manner. One of the greatest lessons I've ever learned. And when I see God doing that in my life, when I see God who comes and he says, all things for my people is permissible, but not all things are profitable, beneficial. God says, I love you, and I'm going to discipline, I'm going to lead you through natural circumstances in life. You will either see it as a hindrance to your happiness or the path to your happiness actually your joy. And we do not attain this by looking to Habakkuk and what he has done. We attain this by looking to the one that Habakkuk points to. If you just look at him, you'll say, I have tried. I can't do it. I'm no prophet. I'm no uh, preacher of the gospel. I cannot do it. I keep falling. I fail constantly. And you will if you look to Habakkuk's and people like Habakkuk in this life. But if you look to the one he points to, it will change your heart. It will change the way you think. It will change the way you think about your finances, about your children, about your spouse, about your coworkers, your employees. It changes every facet of who you are. When Jesus got to the end of his life, he had one possession. It was the robe that he was wearing. When he was put on that cross, he was stripped of that. As he hung on that cross, beaten and stripped naked, cries out, Abba, Abba, why have thou forsaken me? He was stripped even of the Father's love. Everything was taken from him, and yet on the cross that my God, my God, that's covenant language, so you know. That is the language of the old covenant, my God, my God. It's intimacy. He cries out because he recognizes that in this pain, in the suffering he is going through. It is for the benefit of those that he loves. There is purpose behind it. See, when I get that down into my heart, 
And I get down into my heart that he is the lamb that all of the old covenant, the Old Testament is pointing toward, right? Every bit of it from Genesis to Haggai. Malachi? Malachi. It's been a long time since I've done that. That he's the one, he's the lamb, right? When, they, when the Israelites are set free from Egypt and they're told to put lamb's blood on the doorpost, that it's pointing towards the ultimate lamb. He is the escape from sin and death. John the Baptist got it. He recognizes. Anybody watching The Chosen since I said that? How great is John the Baptist's portrayal? He's a little crazy. He's a little weird. But John the Baptist is the first to declare, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the Lamb, the one that our people have been looking toward. God's grace to the Israelites was unmerited, but it was costly. And I tell you today, God's grace to you is still unmerited, but it was costly. Finances, more than anything else in this world, have the ability to take our eyes off of God, have the ability to take our heart away from God. Because we need them for trade, we need them for sustenance, for clothing, for a home. And I don't, I hate when the church preaches that money is evil because money is not evil. What is evil? The love of money. Yeah, well done. To fall in love with it is evil which is why Christ said you can either serve mammon or me. You can't serve both. You can serve money and all that it gives you, the power and the prestige and everything that money can give you, or you can serve me. You can use money, use it to buy the things you need and the things you want, but if you ever begin to fall in love with it, you've lost your way. That's why in corporate worship services, when we come together, we have a time of offering. That's why it's there in every church. And charlatans and wolves in sheep's clothing have come into the church throughout the last 2,000 years. And they have made the offering about them. And the world and even Christians have looked on and been like, there's the church, all about money. And think about it, if you're the accuser, right? And you want to accuse Christ, which he's constantly trying to do. And you want to accuse his children. Come and take the thing that Christ directly compared. You either love me or money and get them to fall in love with that thing. Use their own people against them so they can't even trust God's body, his church. If we look one more verse, Deuteronomy 26, 12, it's where God says, I want you to give 10% of your income away to the Levite and to the alien. The Levites are the ministers, the aliens were the poor the immigrants, the refugees, the widows, and the orphans. That's where we get that tent. And so today, and I'll invite the band up here. Today there's lots of this debate about, well, in the New Testament it doesn't say a tenth, and are we still supposed to give in modern-day post-Christ Christianity? And if you look at the Old Testament, they actually gave probably more like 20-something percent based off of all the other required givings and feasts and things that they had. And so where is it that I'm actually supposed to give? Where, what am I supposed to do? But if we look at Luke 19, Zacchaeus grasped Jesus, right? He grasps that he has been saved by grace, that this man did not deserve it. And he tells him, I'm going to give 50% of my money away. I'm going to give it 
Did Jesus say, no, no, you only have to give a tenth? It's in the law, man. Well, plus the feasts and festivals and special sacrificial gifts, but just a tenth. No, he says, awesome. Why? Because he recognizes where Zacchaeus' heart is. Why is the widow's might more powerful than any percentage given by the Pharisees? Because of where her heart is. Her heart is for the Lord. She is giving everything she can sacrificially to him. That's what I want us to focus on. When we partake in offering, when we get back to a place where whether we pass a bag or we have a time of offering. I see some churches do it where they have a time where worship is played and you can come and drop it off. I don't like, I don't want it to become a show ever. I've enjoyed sort of not having this moment where it's a show, but at the same time, it's also robbing us of a time where we come and we bring our offering in. And maybe you give online, but there's still this dedicated time where you are remembering this, this money and you're saying, Lord, I give to you faithfully. I give to you joyously God because everything I have is from you yes you worked hard for your job yes you work out and maintain a healthy body all those opportunities were given to you by the Lord every single one of them you didn't get to pick where you were born or who you were born to what country you were born in or what time period all of it is a gift from God Almighty When we recognize that, it changes our life. And friends, I don't know what this next season holds. I wish I could say it will be prosperous and the Lord will turn around this sickness within the next month or six months. The fact of the matter is we don't know. This may just be a precursor to something getting much, much worse for us here in America. But I'm not afraid of that. I won't let that cause me to make decisions that do not involve what God is calling me to do. Instead, I will double down on who he is. I will say, Lord, lead me. Even though there are no figs, there are no grapes, there is no fruit on the vine at all, I will worship you, God. If you take away my health, I will worship you, God. If you take away my job, I will worship you. When we look at what Jesus Christ did on the cross, how he gave himself away, how can we not go and do the same? How can we not? Let's pray. Father, Lord, your spirit, your spirit is here amongst us. It's a promise wherever two or more are gathered. Lord, we lift up our worship to you in song. We lay down our gifts before you, God. With joy, generosity, and grace. I would have nothing if it wasn't for you, Lord. If I was left to my own devices, God, help me. Everything I have, everything that I am, is because of you, Jesus. Because of you. We're going to prepare our hearts for a time of communion. 
you had a chance, hopefully when you walked in, you grabbed the cup with the bread on top of the table. If you didn't, you can go grab that now. If you're at home, you can grab that now. While we're preparing for communion, I also want to say this, that we always have this time, this altar call, this time where our prayer partners are up front and our elders who are here are up front. And if any of you wish to come forward for prayer for any reason at all, they want to pray with you. If you want to come forward and give your life to Christ for the very first time, they want to pray with you. If you want to come forward because God spoke to you this morning, they want to pray with you. And whether you take communion now or you take it afterwards, perhaps there's unforgiveness in your heart and God is calling it out. And those words in scripture that says, put the, put the communion down and go and make it right with your brother or sister are ringing in your ears and you're saying, how do I do that? I can't. They want to pray with you. See, this time of communion, this time of response, that's what communion is. It's a response to what Christ has done. Worship is a response. Offering is a response. When we come together, Christ himself told us to respond in this way. That we would remember his body, how it was given and broken for us. And so he blessed it as we are here now. Heavenly Father, bless this bread. As you told us to do, we remember your body. While being fully God, you were fully man. And you gave up your breath for us. We thank you, Lord, and praise the name of Jesus. Let's partake together. cannot forget this next part. He said the whole new covenant will be based on this, the blood of the lamb. My blood will wash away the sin of the world. Father, as we are gathered here together, your body, the hands, the feet, the neck, torso, all of it, God, your body. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you. Praise his name. Amen.